Well, please take your Bibles, if you have them, and turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, as we spend uh, a moment this morning considering the birth of Jesus Christ and uh, our own response to that having taken place. Matthew chapter 2. And uh, we're going to read and consider the first 12 verses this morning, Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. There are some people who love Christmas time. Maybe you're one of them. You love Christmas trees, Christmas lights, whatever kind of drinks they serve at coffee shops that have all the mint and everything in them. Everything that has to do with Christmas, the festivities, you love it all. And then there are some people that don't really like Christmas that much. We see this epitomized in fictional characters like Ebenezer Scrooge, the Grinch who went so far as to steal Christmas, and of course, my personal favorite, the abominable snow monster of the North who hates everything to do with Christmas, or so they thought. These, of course, express how people respond to the Christmas season, to the festivities that surround Christmas. How we respond to that is one thing and generally doesn't say very much about us except for maybe uh, some attitudes we need to think about. But nonetheless, it's not really the end of the world whether we love Christmas time or wish that it would just kind of be more normal like other times. But how we respond to the reality that underlies Christmas is, of course, something altogether very different. How we respond to the birth of Jesus Christ, which gave rise over time to the celebration of Christmas and the Christmas season, that 
is an important thing. That does say something about us. In fact, it doesn't just say something about us. It really says everything about us. It really is the dividing line of what kind of person we are on an eternal scale. What kind of person we are before God. Really, what we think about the coming of Jesus Christ into the world says basically everything about us. And this text talks about the birth of Jesus Christ and more specifically, the response that people had to that. All too often, lost in the shuffle of this season is just that. How do we respond? And people pass through the Christmas season as kind of a harmless tradition, but never stop to think what this birth of Jesus means for them and everyone else. Here, in this account, there is, of course, one main character, one main person, the child Jesus himself. And, of course, he had been born, as it said, in Bethlehem. Uh, This was recounted for us in the verses that immediately preceded this. And uh, verse 25, it says that Joseph kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is exactly what he had been commanded. And then Jesus was born in those days. This was, of course, a miraculous birth, and this was foretold to Mary, his mother, and, of course, told to Mary's soon-to-be husband, Joseph, in chapter 1. The angel of the Lord had told him that this was going to happen and that Jesus would come into the world to save his people from their sins. But now he has been born, and something else happens. The title of this message has in it the phrase, "'Newborn King.'" We know, and you'll see as we go through the story, that by this point, he's not quite as newborn as is often portrayed. He is not uh, immediately born just that very night when the Magi arrive. He is some uh, number of days, weeks, or months older than this at this time. But nonetheless, he is still very, very young. The story is about him, and it is about how people respond to this little baby how people respond to this one that God has identified as the Savior of all who would trust him. It's a passage that then is about not only the birth of Jesus Christ, but about the response to him. And it calls us to consider our own response. We're brought to consider both a negative response, about as negative as you can get, and a positive response, which is about as positive as you can get. And we're taught through these examples to celebrate Jesus' birth by being both willing and eager to worship him. And I hope that's what you're here to do this very morning and really with all of your life, to worship Jesus Christ. This passage calls us to do that, and we'll see how as we go through it now. The question before us today is this, will there be rejection or reverence for the newborn king? Will there be in your heart rejection of him in unbelief, or will there be reverence for him in faith-filled worship? Let's begin considering this question with the appearance of the Magi in Jerusalem. The appearance of the Magi in Jerusalem in verses 1 and 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, this says. This region was the southern portion of the land of Israel. It was basically the territory of the one of 12 tribes, the tribe of Judah from the Old Testament. 
Jerusalem, of course, is located here, and Bethlehem is a town located uh, five, six, seven miles to the south of this particular place. Now, this is a town with a long history. There was a town there as far back as in, in the book of Genesis when it would have been inhabited by the Canaanites. Um, it was uh, founded or at least sort of uh, started by the son of Caleb, uh, one of the 12 spies of Israel during the time of the Exodus, as he was called the father of Bethlehem. The book of Ruth is largely set there. Boaz, who married Ruth, and his descendants were of the city of Bethlehem. And then this, of course, included David, the son of Jesse, who would become the second king of Israel and the one that had the promise that one of his descendants would reign upon the throne. This was, uh, as the song says, a little town. Bethlehem, not huge, not enormous. And uh, during the time of Jesus' ministry as an adult, in John 7, 42, his fellow Jews referred to it as a, a village. Now, Matthew doesn't tell us immediately why Jesus and his family were in Bethlehem, but we all know the story, don't we? How did they end up there? We read about it in the Gospel of Luke. And in the second chapter, we know that Joseph had brought Mary there, who was with child, for them all to be counted as part of the, the uh, census that was issued by Caesar Augustus. And so they were brought to Bethlehem on a human level by that. But of course, we all know on a divine level, and in God's providence, there was one more really, really important thing that needed to happen, which is why they had been brought to Jerusalem. And we'll get to that in just a few verses. He was born uh, in this town, and uh, as we know from Luke chapter 7, it says this, she gave birth to, excuse me, Luke 2, 7, uh, his mother Mary gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. It may have been some kind of a stable or even out in the open, but multiple early Christian writers believe that Jesus had been born in one of the caves outside of town. Regardless, he was born there in Bethlehem of Judea, and this took place in the days, it says, of Herod the king. Now, who was this man? There were many Herods that are described in the New Testament. This was Herod the Great, a man who was born in the 70s BC. He was very loyal and connected to Rome. Uh, his father was assassinated at one point, and it led to him fleeing before ultimately returning. He was a man who built up many great building projects, including the temple, uh, expanding the temple complex in Jerusalem, which went on even for decades after his own death. He was power-hungry. He was desperate to keep his power, and in fact, so much so that he killed two of his own sons because he suspected that they were trying to take his kingship. This gives us a little bit more understanding of why he might have responded the way that he did, not understanding in the sense of thinking that it was okay, but understanding what kind of person and character he was. And he died not long after what's described here, the birth of Jesus Christ. In the waning days of his rule and of his life, this is what happened. The Magi's arrival, the Magi's arrival, it says Magi from the east arrived 
in Jerusalem. They had been traveling from the east, and they came to Jerusalem, as we'll see, because they're looking for something. And uh, they show up into town, and this, is, this takes everyone by surprise. This group of people came from uh, somewhere over far to the east, would have been in the land perhaps of, uh, around Persia or uh, somewhere near where Israel had actually spent some time in exile centuries earlier. Uh, one dictionary describes them this way, uh, the, uh, the word magi, the ancient Greek historian Herodotus used magoi to describe, or magoi to describe a class of priests uh, among the ancient Medes and Persians, later associated with Zoroastrianism. Uh, Matthew is probably using the word in a more general sense for the learned court advisors of Mesopotamia or Persian whose work involves studying ancient and sacred texts, as well as watching for movements of planets and stars that might be interpreted as divine messages, end quote. So they would have come from that region, and there may even have been, uh, we could at least speculate, some type of message learned through the Jewish exile to Babylon and handed down through such a group until the time of Jesus, such that when this star appeared, they would start to uh, connect the heavenly dots, if you will. So these men show up. We often sing of them and speak of them as three kings. They were, uh, of course, not said here to be kings, and we don't really count three of them either. We simply sometimes take that from the fact that there were three gifts given to them. There were more than one of them, and they were this group of wise men or royal advisors. But they were important people. They did come from the east, and they came with a particular purpose, and they told everyone what the purpose was. They came, they showed up in Jerusalem saying, verse 2, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. They announce a question, a report, and a purpose. They say he has been born king of the Jews. He has not necessarily come to take the place of ruling no one necessarily knows who he is and that he is the king of the Jews, and yet he is the rightful heir to the throne. When Jesus was born, he was born as the one who, was the, who had the right to rule over the Jews. He is the promised Messiah. We saw his line, if you read in Matthew chapter 1, you read that his descendants or his ancestors bring him to the point where he is the one who has the right to the Davidic throne, this promised kingship that God gave. They say, we saw his star in the east, and they sought it out, and they came to Jerusalem where the star was, had come to rest, and they looked for that, and that's what brought them there geographically, and then they had this intention to come and to worship him, and so they're saying, please tell us, where is he? We see the star. We see this miraculous sign. We understand that he has been born king of the Jews, and we are ready to give him the honor and praise that he is due. And they sought him out for this purpose. And this puts everyone at a crossroads, in particular, King Herod. And what we find from him is, tragically, a defiant response. A defiant response. The defiant response of King Herod is described in verses 3 through eight. And just for the record, King Herod's response is only the first of many, many defiant responses that we read about in Matthew's gospel. How Jesus came to the Jews, to his own people, including those who were foreign rulers over them. And they, time and again, rejected him. 
time and again said, we don't care that you came to do this. We have our leadership. We have our ways. We have our doctrines. We have our praise from the people. We have our reputations. We aren't giving that up to trust in you. We aren't listening to you. We aren't worshiping you. We are going to preserve what we have, and we don't want to hear it from you. Herod was just the first of many, but he was quite hostile in his response. We start with his troubled reaction. When Herod heard, uh, the king heard this, he was troubled. Uh, perhaps better said as stirred up, stirred up. What we might call, something like what we might call troubled waters. They're peaceful uh, until something happens. You've maybe been at the swimming pool just having a nice relaxing time and then, you know, the kids come in who want to have a, a cannonball contest and they jump in and they stir up the waters. That's the idea here. To put it another way, you might say that the Magi made a splash coming into town. Herod the king heard this. He was troubled, all Jerusalem with him. And Herod was particularly troubled by this because he has now been directly threatened. Someone has been born to do what I am supposed to be doing. I'm the king of the Jews. This question that they come with is, as the saying goes today, shots fired. Herod is not going to be happy about this. And so Herod is troubled, and uh, they are coming into town trying to find out where they need to go to worship. And they're not just talking to him, by the way. Herod heard this, but they show up, and, and the word gets out to the whole town. Everybody knows about this. You can see why Herod would be all the more urgent to quash this if he doesn't want it happening. But nonetheless, now the word is out. So what's going to happen? Herod says, this to me, is a direct threat, and I'm not going to take it. So Herod has a troubled reaction, but then he starts to think clearly, and he sets out on what we'll call his scheming investigation. His scheming investigation. He starts trying to pull together some information. What does he want to know? Well, the first thing that he looks for is the Messiah's predicted birthplace. The Messiah's predicted birthplace. The Magi had arrived, and they're asking, where is he? Where is he? Where is this one who has been born king of the Jews? And so Herod at least uh, acknowledges this enough to say, let me find out. Where is this one supposed to be born? If the people are going to follow him, where is this one going to be? Where is he going to be coming from? So the Messiah's predicted birthplace. How do you get that? Well, he doesn't know this, but he does know enough to know that I should ask the people who know the Bible, and maybe they can tell me. So gathering together, verse 4, all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. He gathered together the scribes, the people who were able to serve in a variety of capacities, by the way, based on their ability to read and write. And of course, in this case, the attention that they would have given to knowing the scriptures. They were trusted in their interpretation, even though, as we know in later times during Jesus' earthly ministry, they got quite a bit wrong, but they knew many things, and here it's pretty obvious, and Matthew is implicitly acknowledging that they all understood this, and they all got this right. This wasn't really a difficult issue for people who knew what the Bible taught. It was that the Messiah, this promised king, was going to be born in Bethlehem. In Bethlehem, that is what they know. There is, by the way, here in 
Herod's question an urgency. He inquired of them. The idea is literally he was, he was asking them. He's, he's, come on, tell me, where is he? Where is he? Where is he supposed to be born? There was urgency. He's in a hurry to know. He needs to know, but not for the kinds of purposes that he ought to be looking to know. Well, they said to him, he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Why is that? Well, this is what has been written by the prophet. Specifically, this is written by the prophet Micah in Micah chapter 5. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what they're doing here, this is not taking an exact section of the Old Testament and just literally copying and pasting the same way we might quote today. He's taking uh, Micah 5.2 and some of the language from Micah 5.4 as well, and maybe even some of the idea from 2 Samuel chapter 5 and verse 2, and sort of bringing that all together, and they're summarizing and they're giving a presentation of what the Old Testament said specifically about Bethlehem and a ruler and a shepherd. And this is what this Messiah was going to do. From this town was going to come one who would be a leader. And this promised leader is spoken of in two rule, two ways. He will, number one, rule. He will be in charge. But also, number two, he will shepherd. This indicates that this ruler who would come is not someone like Herod, who would only exercise power, who would only be in it for his own purposes, who would only just have all the authority, but it would also be someone who would care for the people, someone who would tend to God's flock, someone who would nurture them, and someone who would protect them. This idea of a shepherd has its roots, of course, uh, in the uh, ancient practice of shepherding, one which was practiced by none other than David himself, who was a shepherd before becoming king. He was told in 2 Samuel 5, that the Lord had told him he would be a shepherd over the people of Israel, just like he had been a shepherd over sheep during his youth. Here, this one will be a ruler. He will be a shepherd, and his name will be great, Micah 5 tells us. And he will, as a result of his ability and his rule and his care, cause the people to dwell in peace and safety. It was clear and it was known that he would come from Bethlehem, uh, in John uh, chapter 7, we recognize that even the people knew this as well. Everybody knew that the Messiah was going to come from Bethlehem. They just made the mistake later on of not realizing that Jesus, who grew up in Nazareth, had been born in Bethlehem and therefore was eligible to be the Messiah. Well, this is one piece of information. Where is he going to be born? Where was the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem. And now Herod has that piece of information. He got that from the scribes and the chief priests. Now he secretly turns to another group to find out a crucial piece of information for himself, namely the time of the stars appearing. Verse seven, the time of the stars appearing. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, secretly. He doesn't want anybody else to know that he is asking them about this and getting this information from them. So he secretly called them and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. He wanted to know exactly when this was. Uh, he wants to be able to take all of this information. Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? When did the star show up? And to use that for his own sake. 
he has kept this information in pockets, separate from all the people who might need to know. And now he has accumulated it for himself, and he is ready to use it. More than that, no one else knows what we'll see in a moment, which is that he's sending the Magi to Bethlehem or the charge that he is giving them to come back and report to him. This is just a very, very cunning, cunning plot. So Herod has the information. Where is the child? Herod finds out how old is this child, and what should he do with this? Well, he should worship him. He should say, I have been installed in this role by a conquering empire. I am not the rightful descendant and the rightful heir to the throne. I've had a good run. I have been in charge, but you know, this ought to make me think And this ought to say, well, even though I've lived my life this entire way, something has happened here. And I should respond to this miraculously born, miraculously uh, indicated by this star, obviously fulfilling prophecy, young child. I should respond the way the Magi are. This is what should happen. But instead, he hardens his heart. And he goes another path. And... What we see him carry out in verse 8 are his deceitful instructions. He gives deceitful instructions. He sent them, the Magi, to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me, so that I too may come and worship him. This sounds great, doesn't it? But it's not really what he's after. We know that he is not trying to do this, first of all, by the fact that he is pulling all this together himself. He's not doing it out in the open. We also read in verse 12, as we'll get to in a few minutes, that he, the Magi, had been warned not to return to Herod and that they ultimately are kind of tricking Herod unintentionally by not allowing him to come to the child. And then when we get to verses 16 through 18, we find Herod's response that he was out to destroy this child. This is what he wanted to do all along. He wanted to destroy Jesus Christ, but he makes it seem like he's doing something else. He doesn't just go right now and search and hunt and look for the child and then try to destroy him. No, he wants to use someone else to do his dirty work unknowingly, going and finding out and giving him the information to make his selfish, sinful response of destroying the Messiah all the more easy to cover up. If the Magi come and find him, it's going to look all above board. But the whole time, while he intends this, what is he doing? He wants people to think that he is a worshiper of Christ. He wants people to view him as someone who intends to worship him. This looks like someone who would be what we would call a Christian. This looks like someone who is exercising faith. Someone who is responding to the word of God. Someone who is demonstrating humility. This is someone who is putting himself out there as a worshiper of the Messiah. But he has his own secret and evil reasons for doing this. We, of course, need to recognize that Herod is not the only one by any means who has done this in history. How many people today would love for other people to think that they are a worshiper of Jesus Christ. Oh, certainly it's true that 
in some places in our culture. It's not as much of something that brings street credibility as uh, it once did to say that you're a Christian, but in many places it does. In many families it does. In many friendships and relationships it does. To say that you're not a worshiper of Christ would make you feel like you're kind of an outcast, and so you pretend to be a worshiper of Christ. How many people in our society pretend to worship Jesus Christ for the sake of what they can get out of it? How many people, perhaps even today here in this room, pretend to be worshipers of Christ? But they don't actually want to worship him. They just want other people to think that they want to worship him. How many people come to church on Christmas Day because they want other people to think that they are worshipers of Christ? How tragic it is, how deceptive it is, And this is the exact opposite response that we should have. Rather than worrying about what people think about us as worshipers of Christ or not, we ought to worship him from the heart. We shouldn't put out a shell or a veneer of looking like a Christian and try to convince other people. We should worship him from the heart. And if that is the case, then other people will see it. Now, in Herod's case, his deception was a little more dramatic because he actually intended to destroy the Messiah. Today, people are perfectly happy to just not believe that their unbelief will have any consequences, and they leave Jesus kind of out there as if he's some just historical fiction account, and they don't really worry about him too much. But you can be sure, if they thought that he was going to do something to them, like Herod thought that he was threatened, then they would also say, I am going to get rid of him, and I'm going to push him out whatever way I can. It doesn't make it any less evil to try to use the appearance of worshiping Christ for your own ends while you refuse to worship him as he truly deserves. This is the kind of negative example we have to be warned about and not to follow, that of Herod who made it seem like he was worshiping the Savior, but instead actually only wanted to look out for himself and was willing to do anything to Jesus if Jesus intruded upon his territory. What a contrast then we find when we see the example of the Magi. What an amazing thing this is, the worshipful response of the Magi, the worshipful response of the Magi. They are obeying a, uh, a king who is, intended, uh, who is intending to destroy the Messiah. This doesn't mean that they are doing his bidding. Uh, they're simply going with pure hearts to go do the very thing that they think is the right path. And so after hearing the king, they went their way. This is the Magi's journey, the Magi's journey. The star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them. We have a few things going on here, but this star, uh, they had seen it in the east. They had moved toward it. Uh, It's hard to tell exactly where the star was this whole time, whether it was something that had traced along in front of them and sort of led them in front like uh, not quite a carrot on a stick, which you never catch up to, but something that moved with them on their journey from the east over those many days and weeks and those hundreds of miles that they would have traveled, uh, or that it simply showed up over Jerusalem and they noticed it and uh, perhaps no one else really was watching as closely or understood what was going on with that. Uh, Regardless, it had come to rest over Jerusalem by the time that they got there. But then it not only was there, it moved and it started moving and it came and stood over the place 
where the child was. Now, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that whatever uh, substance this star consisted of, this is not exactly the burning gas ball thousands of miles in diameter that we understand to be in the sky because it was able to move to the place that was over where the child was to identify specifically enough that house that Jesus was now in that they were able to come and to find him. So the star itself led them to the child, and thus you get the images historically and even today of a star that is just sitting there right above a house, right above where Jesus is, or perhaps if they mix the accounts of Christmas, right above a stable or right above somewhere where Jesus may have just been born. Uh, This, of course, took place, as I mentioned, sometime later. Nonetheless, you have this star leading them to the child, to this newborn king, Jesus Christ. And it went on, it says, before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. By the way, we don't know what time of day, what time of night this was taking place. We don't know that they showed up in the night or the day at all. Uh, This is just a couple of hour trip, maybe a little bit more if they're traveling from Jerusalem with a big caravan. Uh, But this star being uh, very bright and supernatural, of course, could have led them even during the daytime as well. So we don't really know daytime, nighttime. That's not really the point. The point is that this supernatural object led them to the place where this child had been born. And thus, when they showed up, we find the Magi's joy. Verse 10, their joy. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. How? Exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of joy. They are very, very excited about this when they see the star and when it shows up over the house because they have traveled for these hundreds of miles and searched and their, their, their hunt has been fulfilled. What a joy it is when we search in our own lives over and over again for meaning and purpose and happiness and all of these things and come up empty and then we are brought instead by God's grace to Jesus Christ. And we have and can have a similar type of joy, not the joy of seeing him in person in the flesh, which actually is one day still to come for us, but the joy that comes from having our sins forgiven, the joy from realizing that this is the truth, that what we kind of hope for, the thing that people look for in their own ways, we have actually found this in Jesus Christ. There's a reason why The Apostle Paul can charge the Philippians, for example, and say, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. If we understand what we have in Christ, we ought to be able to do this. But there was a particular joy on this occasion from having found the one that they had searched so far for, and they had been brought right to his door. And thus, they respond in the way that they intended Verse 2, they said, we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now they get their chance to do that in person. Verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell to the ground and worshiped him. This is the Magi's worship. The Magi's worship. Evidently, they had settled into a house at this point. This is no doubt several weeks at a bare minimum after Jesus was born because of the travel time of the Magi. And uh, at the birth of Jesus, they were not able to find a place in the inn or it wasn't appropriate for them to be in the inn for childbirth. One way or another, they were not uh, in a, uh, even a short-term residence. 
But here they have come into a house in some form or another. They saw the child, it says here, with Mary, his mother. No mention of Joseph. Joseph is still around at this point, as we'll see in the very next section. Joseph received a dream to take his family to Egypt to protect them. Uh, just a few verses from here. So Joseph is around, but that's not what's noted in this case. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground. Fell to the ground and worshipped him. These very important people, these uh, learned people, these scholarly people who had traveled a long, long way, fell down before a little child. Why? Because they recognized who he was. This didn't just happen for anyone. This wouldn't just happen for any person who was of their age or of their status in life or of their social status or their position. They understood that this one was special. This one was unique. And so they fell to the ground and worshiped him. They worshiped the child and then they gave gifts to the child. They saw him. They worshiped him. They gave him gifts. They uh, opened their treasures or their treasure chest, their treasure box is another idea of the word. They had a, some type of container or multiple containers uh, full of good stuff for him, full of good stuff. They presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold goes without explanation, of course. Uh, frankincense and myrrh are both plant gums that could be used to make fragrances, they were very costly, having to be imported to this particular land. Both of them are spoken of as part of the anointing oil in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter uh, 30. And uh, they're also mentioned multiple times in the Song of Solomon when the fragrances are being mentioned. Um, this is like rare perfume, and it, it's not the kind of thing that we would typically get, you know, a young child for Christmas. Uh, they wouldn't be very happy with it, might even make a mess. And yet, something that's a very valuable gift, and along with the gold, of course, very valuable, one or multiple gifts that were fit for a king. And of course, the bigger picture is here that he is worthy of these gifts. He is worthy of them. This is the one who has been born the king of the Jews. He deserved these things. He deserved whatever worship could come to him. So it was completely appropriate for the Magi to do this, and they recognized this, and they were willing to sacrifice and to give of what they had to worship and to bless this newborn king, the king of the Jews. And so we ought also to have the same response of worship. The Magi have fallen down before him. They've given of themselves to him. Part one is accomplished. The newborn king has been found and worshipped, but there is one more thing that needs to take place, which is... He needs to be protected because Herod is still after him. Herod's still after this king. And so we find the account of the Magi's departure. The Magi's departure. How do they leave and why? They leave in obedience to God's warning. In obedience to God's warning. Now they're planning to go back. They're not planning to stay for good. But um, they're told in verse 12, having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod not to return to Herod. So they were going to go back, but they were going to just follow the path that they came and do exactly what Herod said and go report to him because after all, he wants to worship this newborn king, doesn't he? They took him at his word. And yet God steps in and warns them. 
and says, you can't go back that way. You can't tell him where the child is. You can't give him these details that he is going to use to destroy him. Now, interestingly, there's no note that he actually ever told the Magi why they weren't supposed to go another way, although he might have. But God uses this to look out for his son, and he steps into the picture. Herod has his purposes, but what we find here is instead God's absolute sovereignty over the situation. Herod was calculating. Herod was shrewd. Herod was powerful. Herod had a lot of experience, and he had a lot of ability to carry out his plans and to look out for his own self-interest. And he thought that he could use this power and this ability to oppose God's purposes. But here we find that he is no match for God. So it was then, and so it is now, and so it always will be. Evil earthly rulers will seek to assimilate and to protect their political power by whatever means necessary. And they'll do things that are entirely self-serving And at the same time, they will often tell people things that make it seem like they are good-hearted, well-intentioned, and often even on the side of Jesus Christ. But God is not fooled, and God is not helpless to stop them. God can accomplish his purposes in the world, even if he has to warn someone in a dream, even if he has to intervene sovereignly, or if he does so unknown to them entirely, such as using the emperor of the Roman Empire at that time to make sure that Jesus gets to Bethlehem for his birth. Whatever it is, God is going to accomplish his purposes. And they're going to come first and foremost through this, his purpose to send Jesus Christ, his son, into the world to bring redemption and salvation to his people. And he is not going to be stopped, no matter what anyone may try to do to oppose him. No matter how powerful they are, how shrewd, how deceptive they are, it doesn't matter. God is going to carry out his purposes. And our responsibility is to entrust ourselves to that one. Our responsibility is to say, who is the rightful one that we should worship? And it is Jesus Christ. He is the one that we ought to pursue and we ought to praise. They had been told by God not to return to Herod. And so they left for their own country by a different way. God had another purpose. And so the Magi departed in obedience to God's warning and for the protection of God's Messiah. For the protection of God's Messiah. So here we have him now safe for a time from the one who would uh, seek to destroy him. Here, Herod has come after him. Herod wants to destroy him. And really, this demonstrates the heart of rejection by Herod and by many like him. Again, all of the people that should have received Jesus Christ were the very ones that seemed to uh, reject him the most fervently. In uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, we read that Jesus came to his own, and his own, what? Did not receive him. His own did not receive him. But it says to those who did receive him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, to those who believe in his name. 
This is the one who is the true worshiper, those who exercise faith in Jesus Christ. So you have the rejection by the people who ought to have received him, who grew up in this land of Israel, who grew up knowing the scriptures, who grew up expecting a Messiah to come. And yet when he came, they didn't want him. Their sin was too dear. Their pride was too dear. They didn't want to humble themselves and worship this one who had some different things than what they expected. And at the same time, you have the other side of this. Look who came to worship Jesus. Was it people who had grown up in the synagogue? Was it people who grew up knowing the Bible? Was it people who grew up identifying themselves as God's people? No, it was foreigners from hundreds of miles away. It was people who were not part of this people of God by birth. And what this tells us is you don't have to be a Jew to worship Christ. You don't have to be someone who grows up as a Christian or comes from a biblical background to come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. Anyone can come and can turn on a moment's notice to come to him as a worshiper. This is the kind of response that we ought to have. Jesus is not yours and you are not his because you grew up in a people of God context today, the church. But on the other hand, Jesus welcomes people from whatever background they may come. All nations, all locations, all religious backgrounds, including, yes, the church, people that grow up there, if they're willing to turn to him as Lord and Savior. And, of course, there is no better day than today to do it, is there? If you have done this, spend today thanking the Lord once again and worshiping Jesus Christ for having come into the world. And if you haven't turned to him as Lord, there is no better time than now. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this Savior, this one that deserves all of our worship, all of our praise. Thank you for the kindness that is given in sending him into the world. We know the great cost involved in sending him not only to be born, but to die. And We're grateful that you were willing to make that sacrifice. But not only that, he did not remain in the grave, but he is risen. And so we're grateful to worship a Savior who has been born and one who has been raised to life so that, as the song tells us, we may have a second birth. We thank you for this, and we pray that everyone here would leave today having placed their full trust and faith in Christ for salvation. We pray in his name. Amen.